Let me make sure this is recording. Looks like it is. Cool. So, uh, Courtney, um, you have done a lot of work um, helping people who, um, I don't know what you would classify um, the population as, but certainly underserved. And um, individuals facing issues of poverty and access um, issues, things like that. Um, in this podcast, we're talking a lot about, um, well, specifically about voting. And I think in this, um, this episode, more than others, uh, the concepts directly related to voting are a little bit more abstract. So, for example, um, I interviewed my friend Fabiola, who is a naturalized citizen. And we talked a lot about what that means to be somebody who obtains the vote that way. Um, and then I also talked to a friend who um, is a former military member. Um, but also someone who is African-American and has experienced losing her vote due to a felony charge. And so those two interviews were, I think, a little bit more directly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess they, they were a little bit easier to directly tie to voting suppression um, specifically. And what I want to ask you about um, is what I would consider a population of people for whom voting is not, and maybe I'm making an assumption, but voting is maybe, maybe not as acutely a priority merely because of life circumstances. Um, I think, you know, you and I both know that when sleep and food and basic needs are not being met, it's really hard to focus on anything else. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I'm kind of looking in this episode more at, like, what are the ways in which the vote that we have extends beyond ourselves? So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your experience working with individuals facing housing challenges, um, individuals facing previous offenses um, that are kind of plaguing their life a little bit in a lot of ways, um, and then serving as an advocate for disadvantaged populations. Okay. Um, yeah, I can give you a little bit of my background and what I do, what I've done. Um, I, by career, I'm a United Methodist pastor, which places me in communities of, uh, congregations. Usually I have been on leave of absence for a couple of years now living in Berlin, Germany, but, um, I was appointed to a church in Corvallis, Oregon in 2006 as a new clergy person, a young kind of naive clergy person, the congregation I served, highly academic, um, right across the street from Oregon State University, 
a large-ish congregation, fairly wealthy class-wise, I would say. We categorize the majority of that congregation as being um, upper middle class, probably, or even higher. And in the midst of that, um, it's also centrally located in its building and had an extra building and had a feeding ministry, mainly for the church itself, but it started to expand because people had heard about free food. Um, and that led kind of into my work with realizing there was only like temporary shelter when temperatures were freezing, but it was only for a certain category of people. So, you know, you couldn't be on any substances. You couldn't like have any thing that could be interpreted as a weapon. You had to be single male. Like, I mean, there were just all these pieces to it and, but, like, that would shift, right? Like, one season would be, like, you have to be only be female, single female. One season would be single male, like, depending on who was kind of sponsoring the shelter. And so I started really launching into learning about people on the margins, food insecure, um, houseless. And I used the term houseless really intentionally because I believe that a number of people may not... Um, have a house but have created home in some way whether that be in a tent or in a neighborhood or in a car etc um, so that started me down this path of working with people on the margins and opening up new shelters and scavenging for cardboard just to give to people because that would be the most asked for thing at the church for people to sleep on because um if you have just a layer, even a cardboard between you and the ground, it makes a world of difference if you're sleeping outside. Um, and then I was appointed to McMinnville, Oregon, and we kind of accidentally became a tent city. Uh, I was there for five years. And I, I guess I started to realize, like, this congregation was really, you know, had 20-something AA and NA um, meetings had open door policy in the church and that led into more conversation and um, and kind of to shorten the story I ended up in Portland where I started a shelter with other people for houseless veterans and continued my work with the houseless and something in working with that group of people really liked something in my belly and I know how to work with people in that way so part of my call has been to work with this population in a variety of ways so in addition to working with houseless, I've done a lot of like setting up um, urban garden spaces and talking about because houselessness and food insecurity often go hand in hand. So being part of feeding ministries, um, Lori, when you and I worked together, you know we participated in starting a Saturday morning breakfast that expanded. So those issues often go hand in hand um, in what what I have worked with and what I've done and what I've seen with people. But I, I highlight some of those different places because it's also there it ranges from I think the voting question that you're getting at also depends on much like the larger population, who you're working with and who you're talking to. And certainly there's a hierarchy of needs, but um, working with houseless veterans voting is still really incredibly important mm. versus someone who that has not been part of their culture hmm. um, as part of their importance as part of like what they've been like this is a, a, a basic right which is as important to some as 
food security, homes, those kinds of things. So I don't know if that answers any part of your question. And I've kind of lost the thread. No, you're you're good. No, it does. It totally (laughs) does. Um, Well, what challenges um, were you able to identify in that role, in those roles that you had um, that persist for people who don't have access to housing, um, maybe are struggling with sustainability in, in many ways in their life? Um, including just awareness and education about voting, um, you know, what the issues are, all of that. Yeah. When you, when you asked me or when you were talking about that, I I think probably the number one hurdle beyond education and awareness possibly, um, is a lack of ID sometimes. Like Mm. there's a very basic, like in order to go to vote, which we don't have to do in Oregon, we have our mail-in system, but if you're anywhere else where you have to go to vote, you have to have some sort of ID. And there's a large part of the margins of population that don't have access to an ID, possibly because there's no address, which is also a hindrance to voting in sure. Oregon votes as well, where you get a ballot sent to. Mm. Um, so that is like basic, basic issue. Like, is your ballot sent to where you might have had an address before and now you're not there? It's a very transient population. So Mm. um, address is linked to ID, which is linked to, like, your accessibility to receiving your ballot or information. So even just, like, basic needs of, like, where is a ballot sent to and how do you prove that you are yourself to actually get your vote in is huge. Right, like, and that that holds a whole host of issues in so many ways. Um, and then, yeah, I think possibly this. There's so many people that have been told that they're not given value, that mm. they aren't, their voice isn't heard, it's not worth it. Then why would they submit a vote? Right, like that's. Sure. Um, I hear that sometimes. Like, well, who gives whatever about what I have to say? Like, mm. here I am struggling to get by. Um, and then, yeah, I think there's just some basic awareness about the importance of voting and that it is a, a right, a human, a, a privilege in some ways to like, and then I think you also hit on like, this is also a population that's probably going to have a lot more restrictions as far as felony conviction sure. or, um, something that also puts them in the category of not being able to vote. So there's a lot of layers to that, um some of which is general population layers, I would say, like awareness, education, all those things. And then some things that I think a majority of us don't think about, like well, most of us that have this conversation have an address. Right. right. And that's a very basic thing to even like think about how does someone have an address in order to do that. And even that is wrapped up in ID. Like how do you apply for an apartment if you don't have an ID? And Right. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the challenges that individuals who are facing houselessness um, go through when trying to have that established personhood, having to, um, you know, be able to prove who they are in ways that maybe the rest of us kind of take for granted? I mean, I think... So the last appointment that I was in, which in the Methodist churches, it means that the bishop has placed us in a location to do ministry. Um, 
I was in a neighborhood of Portland, Oregon called Sunnyside, which is in southeast Portland, close to Belmont District. And I was placed in a, in a location. The church had closed, but the ministry had been happening for 30 years, a feeding ministry, which also had um, a clothing closet and showers and, like, all sorts of places for people to be. And I think what happened often was that there was a steady group of people that lived in that neighborhood, did not have houses in that neighborhood, but had lived in that neighborhood. And there is this way that a population that is living outside or in tents has to continuously legitimize taking up space. Hmm. So often we would have these conversations with people like, one of our people that came to eat, you know, when we served food and took showers and received clothes, had been in the neighborhood for like 15 years, much longer than the majority of people living in homes in the mm. neighborhood and houses in the neighborhood. And so he would continuously be like, they're trying to push out one of their neighbors. Like he mm. is an established neighbor. He's an established part of the neighborhood. He like, so his entire existence like, on a day-to-day basis, is trying not to get the neighbors to, like, kick him out or treat him mm. horribly when he's like, wait, I, like, helped build that garden over there, and I've been in that alleyway for 10 years, and, like, I've established relationships. It's like, this guy, just because he's not in a house, is having to, like, defend himself mm. to, like, be in space, which, like, he hasn't really been a problem, right? It's just like, it's an uncomfortable reminder of, I would say, another kind of a pandemic in the sure. United States um, with not many resources. Anyway, there's not a lot of allocation, but um, just the baseline, not even, I'm not talking about IDs or voting rights or an address, but just like, basic existence in a city that wants to label him as homeless and then shoo him along to the next neighborhood, which like, how long can you shoo people or sweep people out of places? Like there's, there's nowhere else to sweep. Right. Right. And sweep is the term used in the houseless community in which authorities come through and basically clear people out by taking all their possessions and telling them they have to leave and then they have to rebuild all of their possessions. So how, I mean, people just have to like defend ways to be a human being to be present. I feel like there are, um, some similarities in that to some of the conversations I've been having with individuals about race and mm. particularly for BIPOC individuals to, um, who have to continuously prove their worth or prove their right. innocence or prove, you know, prove their value when Absolutely. for white people, yeah. you don't have to do that, you know, or for people yeah. who are, yeah advantaged and privileged you're just assumed to be a good person you don't have Mm -hmm. to prove that absolutely yeah and I think you know within the houses community there's also layers of complication with race and BIPOC issues so then you like add layers of dehumanizing someone LGBTQ Um, issues yeah LGBTQ I I always uh, ate for when I saw some of my people come in that are trans because they're really, it's like 
there's very little rights for a trans houseless person Mm. and the amount that that person has to endure from even their own community out on the streets is beyond what is, should be survivable. Mm. Um, and, and then we wonder why there's so much mental illness and I think there's some direct correlation. Right. And for me, that's one of the reasons that I have become really passionate about voting rights and voter suppression because I feel like there's such disparity in treatment of people and it's blaring to me how obvious some of the policies and laws and efforts are to devalue another person um, and to devalue their voice. So uh, let's turn a little bit to advocacy. So what responsibility to advocacy do you see as important in regard to public policies, voting measures, to ensure that there's equity and justice for underserved populations. When uh, many people are struggling to um, feel like their voice matters, for one, or to access their voice through voting, what does that mean for the rest of us for which those aren't the challenges? Yeah. Um... I mean, I think we all have a responsibility to, first of all, educate ourselves and be aware. Um, I mean, I find that even, so a colleague of mine, I was texting with the other day and she also works with houseless folks and very educated. And also um, I recently read some numbers about how in Berlin, Germany, which is a city of over little over 4 million people, 3,000 who identify as houseless, who are either in emergency shelter, couch surfing, etc. And the government here is talking about vaccinating the houseless folks as the next level, which I find really kind of amazing. It gives value to the margins and and, and conversations about safety of this population, right? Which I was really kind of amazed by. And I was like, so three houses... 3,000 houseless in a city of over 4 million. Oregon is a little over 4 million. So what's the number there? Well, it's close to 16,000 in January 2020, which means, Hmm. and I know that the numbers of houselessness has, I mean, I might venture to say doubled. Sure, sure. Within the pandemic here. Maybe more. Um, And that's reported. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are counted. Mm -hmm. So, like, this is 16,000 pre-pandemic houseless count, which like means not everyone is counted because you have to volunteer to be counted. And so in Portland, so I'm, you know, looking at the city to city, which like not even close in population, but Portland alone had close to a 5,000 person count in January, 2020. So those numbers of like the same population being at least almost quadruple. Yeah. Right. Like, is really, really insane to me that, like, the first... So, anyway, I'm telling my colleague this, and she was surprised at these numbers. She was surprised and shocked. She was like, this is shameful. But this is someone who works in houselessness. Mm. To, like, be shocked by the numbers of houseless means that the education there needs to be first in order to kind of shock us into an advocate role, which means advocacy for basic rights housing, food, um, voting, 
right? I mean, yeah. these are some of the very basic, which means our advocacy has to be a fuller kind of advocacy as well, because if we, it can be really overwhelming to be like, we're going out for it all, but I think the awareness of like, this is included in that, even to educate people that they have a voice, that they can register, I think it's, it rests on all of us to do parts of that work, mm. for sure. And Those I, of us who know that. Yeah, and I wanted to... Just because I have, I'm trying to get Denali to lay down here, um, lay down. Just because I'm aware of this, um, I was, I wanted to ask you about it and hope that you might talk a little bit about. Um, it's not directly tied to voting as much as it is just government, I guess. But what does it mean to have a liaison? of somebody who understands politics, understands government, um, and to be honest, has the privilege of being someone who um, officials are willing to hear, mm -hmm. open to hear, um, sure. to affect the livelihood of others in that way. Um, so specifically, I'm thinking about McMinnville and your efforts with city council um, and city managers and, and people like that to yeah. be that advocate, to be that liaison, um, to increase access and to try to combat disparity in the system. Yeah, I mean, I think it's essential. Um, I think there's so many of us that are like, what can we do? And voice matters in our system. so. And cons and and matters. So, oh, you're frozen. You're still there. I'm here. Okay. Um, so, I mean, writing the letter, continuously meeting, like we may be hitting our heads against the wall, but um, city officials and beyond actually listen to their contingents and and constituents. So, it makes a difference to continuously come to bat. It it makes another difference if it means you're in relationship with people who need that advocate. Like mm. it's one thing to say, um, yeah, I represent a whole crew of people or I care about this group of people. It's another thing to say, I have befriended the top drug dealer in town and given him a tent and he actually is doing really well. And he's communicating with our other church people and he's going to NA and sure he can be kind of an idiot sometimes, but at the same time, like you and I both know him and I can speak to his character of what he's doing. And anyway, there's a built relationship there. It's not easy. Like working, working with the other, whatever the other is for us is never easy. So it takes education. It takes like realizing our own foibles, but, but to go to like city management or city council or whoever and say, yeah, I represent this group of people, but also like, here's here's someone's story that they're allowing me to advocate mm -hmm. for. It it makes a huge difference. So part of our own work is also finding ourselves become, like trying to create relationship or be in relationship with the other enough that we can advocate for what they actually might need. Yeah, I, I think, think also like so often we assume and then we're like, oh, that person didn't need. 12 cans of peas or you know like whatever right. it is <laughs> right. they actually really wanted like dry beans and right. you know rice like <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and I think about that in terms of like voter suppression too. A lot of times yeah. the conversation gets centered on like statistics or or kind of broads uh, of strokes of people and and sometimes I think in those conversations it's easy to forget that what we're talking about is people and yeah. Yeah. Um, we're talking about individuals' right to vote and have their voice. And particularly in many cases, people who historically have been challenged with that and not valued. And so yeah. when, when uh, things about access, whether it's voting or otherwise, come up, um, I, I hear you and I, I can also, um, I think, speak to that importance of the, just the humanity of it. Um, yeah, I think that's really an important piece. Uh, let's switch a little bit to talking about your experience voting yourself. Oh, um, sure. yeah. And specifically as an Oregonian, um, when you were first able to vote, what was that experience like for you? Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I grew up in a small town in Oregon, a conservative small town. And, um, my parents, my mom's a teacher, my dad's a lawyer, was a lawyer at the time, now is a judge, is a circuit court judge. Um, so my dad being a lawyer, it was never a question of like, if we'll register to vote when we turn 18. <laughs> it was like, you're, you're registering to vote when you turn 18. So the minute I could vote, I registered to vote. I was really excited to vote. I come from, um, parents of very, like, moderate Republicans. My dad's an old school Republican. And so like most children do, I registered as a Republican, not really knowing much difference <laughs> in that space, right? Like I just did what my dad does. Um, but I was really excited to vote, really excited. Um, I've never gone to a voting booth. So I, it's been mail-in ballot my entire voting life. Um, so that's never been an experience I can relate to. I've heard about it, but it's always been mail-in ballots for me. So able to research in a different way. Um, and I just, I remember like sitting down with my dad, like sprawling out all the voting guides and like going through it with him and, and being like, can't tell you how to vote, even though like his influence was essential <laughs> to my voting patterns sure. at the time. But, um, I, when I went to seminary in Chicago and I had to like change my address and I wanted to vote in the Chicago elections when I lived there, I had to re-register, right? In the area in Illinois. And, um, I, I actually got convinced to like, not, I got convinced to like stay in Oregon to make difference in Oregon. But I, at that time I was like looking at, well, then how would I, what party would I want to register with? And I, re-registered as Democrat in Oregon with my permanent address and my dad called me and he said you know you got something in the mail <laughs> and my dad like loves me beyond anything and I had like I had become a vegetarian he was like but I can't handle this like first vegetarian <laughs> took off to Chicago but Democrat and he hung up the phone and didn't talk to me for like two weeks which was like not our relationship that's the only time my father has not talk to me when I came out he talked to me like that wasn't a big deal but the, the change of party 
Ooh, he had to really work through some stuff on that. <laughs> talk, talk a little bit about what you perceive as um, what you're grateful for in terms of the system of voting in Oregon. Um, you know, some people talk yeah. about how there's really something special about getting to go to a voting, you know, precinct and do that. But um, aside from not having that, what are the what are the positive sides of Oregon system? Yeah, sure. yeah, I mean, I think there's some like nostalgia of the voting booth. There's some like sentimentality to it. As someone who didn't ever go to the voting booth, I don't I don't think I've missed it because. Um, like, I, I know my vote will get there, and I know that I have the time to make my vote and send that in. I think more people have access to the vote, because mm. as long as they have an address, it comes to them, and then and as long as they've, like, registered, then they can send that in, they can drop it off. Um, so I, I think, you know, voting, voting percentages are up in Oregon than right. other states, because people do have access to it. They don't have to try to get there. I think the, the majority of the population then can send in their vote a lot easier than go and wait in line or try to do that after work or, sure. um, yeah. So there's a lot more access in a lot of different ways to voting by mail. Living abroad, it was really, really easy for me then to mm. email, um, the, the office and say, I'm abroad. And then there's this, you can print off online and then have a special mail in and, um, you have to send it a little bit ahead of time, but it, it works because I think Oregon has already set up these like balances of mail-in vote. So sure. those of us living abroad can do that actually really well. One of the um, interviews I saw with Stacey Abrams, they were talking to her and they were asking her, you know, what would you, what would you envision as, um, what would you envision voting looking like in the U.S. as ideal? And her response was Oregon. And um, it made me proud uh, to be yeah. from Oregon and to be part of that. But it also gave me a sense of gratitude that, um, you know, I, I think that those of us who are in that system maybe can take a, take for granted a little bit. Um, and being as someone who has voted in the booths and then moved to Oregon and got to do voting mailing, yeah. I can say that my my vote is actually much more educated. <laughs> yeah. Um, because when I went to the booth, I didn't, right. I didn't always have a pamphlet for one that explained yeah. all the issues and the people. Yeah. But I also, in that moment, I just went and voted. I didn't take time to like really research right. and go through it. And so I, I think that's pretty special about yeah. Oregon for sure. And you don't have, like, hours in which, like, it shuts down and then sure. people couldn't get in. There's not, like... You don't have to stand in line. Yeah, and there's not potential to, like, stall people out in some ways, too. It's, like, you receive your mail, you mail it in. Like, there's... Right. There's also not, like, a name to face, like, whether or not I'm going to accept your vote. It's mailed in, so... Well, and something you alluded to with your dad, um, I know in my voting experience in Oregon, whatever household I was in, um, mm -hmm. there was conversation around that. And there was, yeah. um, you know, kind of this small community, a household community of people discussing the issues and talking about the candidates right. and 
sharing um, perspectives. And I, and I think that is kind of different. I don't know that yeah. most people go that in depth when the responsibility is to just show up at a booth. So right. I think it does kind of instigate um, some further conversational pieces yeah. to yeah, have Oregon's system. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you perceive to be um, the importance of having voice through vote. As opposed yeah, to, I mean, you know, marching in a street or, you know, other, other types of voice. I mean, I don't think they're exclusive either. I mean, you can, I think sometimes the voice through vote fuels your voice through protest mm. or voice through advocacy. Um, because it is part of your voice. I mean, I, I think part of this is how I was raised, right? Like this was not um, something to take advantage of. It wasn't something to disregard. Like this was, my family, my three brothers and I were really raised that this is a really important part of your work as a citizen. Mm -hmm. And this was a special privilege that you get to advocate and you get to, you know, send in a vote for someone as part of your voice and it matters. Um, so I think I've just really carried that through. My three brothers and I all vote pretty religiously, and we talk about it, and we take that very seriously. Um, it was one of the first things that my brothers asked when I moved abroad, like, you're going to vote, right? Like, yes, I'm going to vote. <laughs> I take that very seriously. And I, and I feel like I can't complain about the outcome unless I have participated because mm. if I'm not willing to lend my voice in some way, then I actually can't just complain about what the outcome is. And when I fully participate, I also have that right to be like, no, I, I didn't I didn't vote for this. I don't agree with it. I'd like to see a different way, a different path, that kind of thing. So. And do you have any part of you that has to kind of reconcile that with the inequities in the system? There are a lot oh, of yeah, people absolutely. who protest the vote because of the Electoral College or... They just don't feel like yeah. their voice matters. Yeah, and I think I hear that a lot, especially from Oregon, because the reality is when it's not a local election, results aren't really, I mean, they, they don't really make a huge difference from Oregon because we don't have the electoral, electoral college vote. We don't, sure. we vote, our numbers come in much later sometimes because of time zones. And yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of reconciliation with that, but then you also can't advocate for other things unless you partake in the system. Right. I mean, you could, but also it's kind of that, can I change within, change without type mm. of thing. I don't think I make a difference even in my advocacy if I choose to not vote. That doesn't make any sense to me. Gotcha. Um, I'm wondering about, and, and I don't know how familiar you are with this, but the recent changes in um, Georgia around um, which sort of stifle the souls at the polls. Um, have you heard about this? I don't know. So, Probably um, not. We don't. We hear some news from that way, but sure. not the So in Georgia, um, and in the South in many ways, I think church is a, is a part of people's community in a different kind of way than it is in the Pacific Northwest. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. And there's a movement in the South called Souls at the Polls where people's um, 
experience of just community and place puts them um, in a church on Sunday mornings, mm -hmm. more so than in other places. Um, mm -hmm. And there are a lot of um, people who have maximized on that to say, this is an opportunity for us to educate our parishioners to um, lift up their voice and to help them understand their role in voting, to help them achieve access in voting, all of that. And, um, and so the movement centers around, um, you know, this particular Sunday, helping people get registered and helping people um, do early voting. Um, and there's some restrictions that the Republican legislators in Georgia have recently implemented that prevents um, some of that registration and vote, early voting from happening on Sundays. So it doesn't totally um, stifle the souls to the polls um, initiative completely, but it definitely is a hit. Yeah. And yeah. I wonder if you could talk, um, again, it's going to be a little bit different from the Pacific Northwest, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role you see church mm -hmm. having in promoting people's voice through vote. I mean, I think um, we have a responsibility to give awareness and education to our people and to make sure that they have a heard voice. A lot of people will say church is not political, and I don't believe that because I think Jesus was political. true. <laughs> Jesus, like, took on the empire, um, destroyed the temple structures, and challenged the authorities, both political and in the church world itself. So sure. the basis, actually, if we're called Christians in our faith tradition, uh, is fairly political. It challenged the empire. It gave voice to the voiceless. I mean, I think probably Jesus would be up there being like, okay, if you get to vote, you need to vote. Like, this mm -hmm. is whatever way you vote, you have a voice, and so this is a way to give voice. So um, I actually like the idea of promoting registration and giving that and not necessarily telling people how to vote that's not but empowering people to use their voice as part of our responsibility and role and perhaps some of our role too is like if we do see something that gives voice to advocacy then i do think we have a reason to speak out and say yeah i would i back this because um and it may be a political statement and i think we actually have some responsibility to make some political statements. Yeah, definitely. I I um I often struggle with the relationship between church and state. Um and I like think a lot of that has uh developed over history. Um you know, at one point in time, I would say, you know, the democrat the Democratic Party wasn't a friend to BIPOC people, um, you know, as much as Republicans and, and in ways that's reversed. And and I'm thinking about today's climate of um, sort of evangelical fundamentalism that has really um, sacrificed a lot of important voices. Um, right. And... 
and I, I don't know, I struggle with um, associating myself as a Christian a lot of times because I see people who claim to be Christian who don't represent anything close to what I would consider Christian. Right. right. And, yeah. and the suppression of people's voices that happens in the name of that. Um, and, you know, in our country, we're a work in project, uh, in process, obviously, but, um, the goal is to be a more perfect union, right? The goal is to constantly be growing and, and progressing. And in a lot of ways, I feel like there are parts of our country that have gone backwards in that and that um it's often tied to that um religious strain of belief um what what impacts do you think in uh the christian community are needed to bring about a more perfect union how do we oh, man. how do we <laughs> address this issue of um, you know religious beliefs and conviction with the negative steps backwards that have happened? Uh, that's that's a good question. That could be a doctoral thesis someday <laughs> for someone. <laughs> I, uh... That's a huge question for nine o'clock at night, for sure. Um, it might take, you know, many days for me to formulate anything. I, I don't know. I mean, I, in some ways, I don't see a way out of it because how do you convince someone with such convictions that's related to a party that they're capitalizing on to, like, give that up? I don't know because I think the religious community is dealing with this as well even if we step back from the political realm, like I belong to a denomination that is basically mirroring the divisions in our country. It's mm. going to split apart. It's trying to split apart and it keeps getting like put off another year. And then, you know, it, it, and it comes down to like conservative part, parts versus progressive liberal parts. And it, it lands on inclusivity and like, how do you then convince a whole religious body to try to work towards a more perfect union and then influence the country? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I think it's beyond the scope of what I know it looks like. And even from afar looking at it, which gives me a very different perspective and some clarity around some things mm. and some interesting things I've never realized I was even in like American exceptionalism is for reals. Um, I, I don't I, I don't know the answer to that one. And and I think you know, there's a piece of me that's like, yeah, let's work towards more union and then there's another piece of me that's just like mad as hell hmm. that there's this some of this shit happening and so then I, I don't know that I want to become more perfect union with hmm. people who put kids in cages and who you know, I mean there there's a number of things that I'm like, I, you know, can we fix this before we get get together? I don't know. And and people who like, if it is, if the denomination is mirroring what's happening in, in the government, like, 
there are people who want to hurt me, right. even within my own denomination. And so how do I then come to the table with people that want to eliminate me as LGBTQ clergy person who want to, you know, just, nope, you don't exist or we don't accept you. Like, how do, how do we then come to the table and then be like, well, let's work together on this. Right. Like, I, I don't. We, it, no one says you should walk directly into a lion's mouth if it's, you know, because that's dangerous. That's not something you do. So, how how do you then work towards unity when there are people that actually want to eliminate you and are dangerous for you? I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, I um, I've been thinking a lot about the American experiment and how. Um, the outcomes of that are really being challenged right now. Um, one of the other individuals that I interviewed, um, proud military, um, and yet when I asked that same similar question of her, um, it was sort of doom and gloom <laughs> response, like, yeah. Yeah. I don't really think we can become a more perfect union until everything blows up, basically. Mm. Um, and as a person who normally errs on the side of optimism, um, yeah. it was really hard for me to swallow and hear. Um, you know, in recent events, um, I think perpetuated by the last presidency, but the insurrection, all kinds of things that... Um, just feel like the divide we're facing is getting bigger and bigger. And I fear for what that means for the vote too. Mm -hmm. um, already I feel like there's a significant portion of our population who don't value the vote to begin with, but then don't value the outcomes either. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, I guess isn't surprising to me that there's also this segment of legislators um, and influencers who are then trying to influence who gets to vote. Um, and I think all of that comes back to who gets to be valued. Um, yeah, sure. You know, like we were talking about in the in the beginning of our conversation about people who are houseless and having yeah. to constantly you know, prove their validity. I think that's, um, it's a big issue. Obviously I'm not expecting you to have all the answers, but, um, but it's also cyclical to me. Like if you're somebody who I, I know when I fail at something, um, you know, I got a C in one of my classes recently and I was devastated. Um, and that seems really silly to me to say out loud, but I think about people who maybe, um, partake of alcohol and drugs after being sober for 10 years or lose their home because of a bad investment or because of health issues or whatever already it's hard enough to give yourself value I think yeah yeah sure but then to be told by society um, and by a voting system that you don't have value. Um, yeah. I think that's huge. It's a huge, yeah. it's a bigger issue of suppression than just the rules to me. 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else that you would share with us, um, you know, to convey some important aspects of um, voting uh, for people who are um, underserved or facing um, sustainability challenges that we didn't talk about? I think we hit most of it. I mean, if I, yeah, I, not right off the top of my head. I think something that you said that I knew, but I hadn't really thought much about, and it's really kind of sticking in my mind now is, well, particularly in Oregon, um, the issue of address. Yeah. In my head, I was like wrapping voting issues and struggles around all the other challenges that people who are houseless have. Um, but just that one piece of address, mm -hmm. that's huge. And address is huge for just about anything. Um, and when you don't have it, like, what ha I mean, any communication from important resources you need an address to you know sometimes they buy a phone you have to have an address um apply for a job or just apply for a job you have to have an address like there's all these things that you need a location hmm. and there are some places that offer an address or a mailbox um it also an address sets your probation area hmm. so and so you have to stick around that address because someone may come to check on you within a perimeter of that address. So an address carries more than just um, somewhere to like send a card or something, right? right. Like it, it, it's all communication. It holds your vote. It holds like your future around probation. If you're on probation, it holds like there are all these things attached to an address. And if you move addresses, it also causes a lot of hoops to jump through. So if you're someone who's transient and for some reason you lose whatever address you have been affixed to, then that causes a whole shuffle as to, it's, it's not easy moving addresses. Interesting, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's huge, it's huge. And most everything someone does in the United States is an address. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, thanks Courtney, I really appreciate yeah, you doing this with us and um, lend, lending us your uh, wisdom and insight. Um, I really yeah, appreciate fine. it. Good. I'm glad I could help. Thank you. Bye, you bet.